Welcome to Follow Him, a weekly podcast dedicated to helping individuals and families with their Come Follow Me study. I'm Hank Smith. And I'm John, by the way. We love to learn. We love to laugh. We want to learn and laugh with you. As together, we follow Him. Hello, my friends. It is Easter at Follow Him. My name is Hank Smith, and I'm your host, and I'm here with my victorious co-host, John, by the way. Hello, John. Welcome to Follow Him. That phrase never came up in track and field in high school for me, so thank you. (laughs) Yeah, you're welcome. We're victorious. The reason I bring up that word, John, is because we're studying Easter this week. It's our Easter lesson, and the title of this week's lesson is, O Grave, Where is Thy Victory? And when I read that, I thought, that's John. John is a victorious person. You're the only one, but thank you. I'll take it. (laughs) You got it. John, I have some news. Over on our website, followhim.co, up on the right-hand side, there's a link called Video Submissions. And if you go there and you click Video Submissions, you can upload a video. We want to hear how the Come Follow Me curriculum has made a difference in your life. You may even make it on the show or onto our social media accounts. So we would... Love to have these videos. They need to be less than 60 seconds. You come on, you fill out a little form, you select a file. Those of you who were maybe born in the 1900s, you might need a a child or a grandchild to help you out with this, but we would love to hear from you. So go to followhim.co, click on video submissions, and we will be sorting through the videos we get. Also, if you're one of the first 20 people to upload a video, we're going to send you a follow him hat. John, do you have a follow him hat? I don't know if you... I do. I'll show you one. Let's, uh, you have a follow him hat? It's my follow him hat right I here. I have a couple follow him hats. Go over to followhim.co and upload your video. We want to hear from you. John, studying Easter this week, we needed a scriptural expert and we needed someone we could have a lot of fun with because it's Easter and we need to have a lot of fun on Easter. So tell everyone who's joining us. Well, we're glad to have Dr. Anthony Sweat back with us again. He's been on the program before, and we always have a good time with our friend Anthony. Let me just briefly reintroduce him to some of you. He received a BFA in painting and drawing from the University of Utah and his master's and PhD in curriculum and instruction from Utah State University. And before joining the religion faculty at BYU, he taught for 13 years in seminaries and institutes. He's the author of several books and articles related to the teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. His research centers on factors that influence effective religious education. And I love to talk about this with Anthony. As a practicing artist, his paintings center on previously underpresented important aspects of church history to promote visual learning. Anthony and his wife, Cindy, are the parents of seven children. They reside in Springville, Utah. So if you want to see some of Anthony's art, there's a book he wrote called Repicturing the Restoration. Also, he's been very helpful in my family, my kids that have gone to the temple. I got this form, The Holy Invitation, and recently he just wrote a follow-up called The Holy Covenants. And another one, we've got Christ in Every Hour. So he's a great author and a good friend, and we're glad to have Anthony back. Thanks for being with us again. Hey, thanks so much, John and Hank. It's just a blessing to be on your show, a blessing to be with your audience, your guests, but above all, just grateful to be with two friends like you that I love dearly with my whole heart and soul. And even if this weren't being recorded or filmed, I couldn't think of anything better to sit down and just talk about Jesus and scriptures with you two. I just love you both. 
This is going to be a lot of fun. I have a couple things to say. Anthony didn't ask us to do this. I was just, as John was giving the bio, I looked up anthonysweat.com. There's some paintings there you can look through. There's You can even order some. There's some books you can look through. So we'd encourage everybody to go over to anthonysweat.com. Anthony's probably shaking his head saying, didn't want you to do that. But. I am. I'm, I'm nervous because my website will probably crash because it's not that good. <laughs> it's never had that many visitors. <laughs> the other thing I wanted to talk about was a book that Anthony is a part of. This book is really special to me. It's called Look Unto Him. Those of you who are watching on YouTube, you can see it right here. I was working with the incredible Eva Timothy, who was doing the art for this book. And Lisa was doing some of the writing too. I think it's on the third page, Lisa. This book is dedicated to my assistant, Lisa Spice. It would never have seen the light of day without you. In the middle of writing this book, I went through some really difficult times. It was right during the pandemic. My brother passed away from COVID in December, and then my father passed away just 90 days later, and I found myself unable to write. <laughs> I was, I was uh, dealing with a lot of things, as you do when loved ones pass away. And I wasn't going to reach the deadline. So I called on my friends, John, by the way, Al Carraway, Jody Moore, and Anthony Sweat. And they came to the rescue and helped me finish the chapters in this book. And we got it out on time. Uh, and you can see the great art by Eva Timothy. So to both of you, I don't know if I've ever said thank you from the bottom of my heart for saving me on this project. Oh, thanks for inviting us to be a part of it. That was fun to write and be with Ava's art is amazing. And just fun to be with you too, connected with you in there. Yeah. Shout out to Al Carraway and Jody Moore for coming to the rescue as well. Look unto him, finding the love of Christ in our lives. Anthony, we are going to be talking Easter this week. As we were talking before we recorded, how many chapters could we read for? I think the exact <laughs> count was 531. Yeah, yeah. There's 531 chapters we could read <laughs> about the Savior and his life and his resurrection. So we're going to kind of hand it over to you and say, what do you want to do? Where do you want to go with this wonderful week, this Easter lesson? Yeah. I mean, obviously we need to center in on Jesus's death and his resurrection, his conquering of the grave and, and of death and that's what we're celebrating. As you said, I mean, this is a joyful week. This is a wonderful week. And I think maybe up front too, it's great that I love that, you know, the first presidency sent out these letters of making Easter Sunday really special. I don't know about you guys, but it seems like growing up, Christmas was always a big deal. And Easter was just kind of like, oh yeah, you get a little Easter basket. We go to church like normal. I love that it seems to be a greater emphasis, a growing emphasis, if I can say it that way, to make really Easter is our triumphal celebratory. It is the great Hosanna. It's the great victory over death and sin that we're making it or, or trying to make it as great as the emphasis as Christmas and his birth, that we celebrate his death and his resurrection and his triumph in our Sunday services and our sacrament and with our families that day. So I hope up front that every listener in their own way can really praise the Lord. In my own personal scripture study was who can glory too much in the Lord? Right. Who can say too much in his name? That's Ammon, right? That's Ammon, yeah, on their missions. And I just hope individuals and families can gather together with their loved ones and on Easter Sunday, just glory in the Lord and talk about his name, praise him, celebrate him, rejoice in him, prophesy of him, teach of him, unabashedly, unashamed, without reservation, and turn Easter Sunday into a celebratory, just great day of celebrating our, our Savior. That's my biggest Beautiful. hope up front. 
Beautiful. In the manual, there's a link. Well, not in the paper manual. Don't try to, <laughs> if, you have a, <laughs> if you have a book copy, don't try to click on the link. But on my phone here, there's a link to easter.comeuntochrist.org. And so I just clicked on it here and there's all sorts of resources to celebrate, like you said, to praise the Lord. In prepping for this, I did the same. And being totally honest, I wasn't aware of that website. It's great. There is great stuff on there. So again, it's easter.comeuntochrist.org. They have some wonderful things that are laid out about Holy Week that we'll talk about. So there's some really cool things from the church to help you in your individual lives try to make this a great, special week too. Anthony, I'm excited for that Easter Sunday. It's been kind of set as we're sacrament meeting only, and we're going to come and focus in on the Lord's life. I don't remember that when I was a kid. I don't remember that either, but it's exciting. I love it. Hey, to get us rolling here, I love this opening paragraph in the Come Follow Me manual. It says, during the last week of the Savior's life, many Jews around him were participating in the traditions of Passover. They prepared meals, sang songs, and gathered together to remember the deliverance of the house of Israel from slavery to the Egyptians. Families listened to the story of the destroying angel passing over the homes of their ancestors who had marked their doors with the lamb's blood. Amid all these celebrations, so rich with the symbolism of deliverance, relatively few were aware that Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, was about to deliver them from the slavery of sin and death through his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. Even so, there were those who recognized Jesus as their promised Messiah, their eternal deliverer. From that time onward, disciples of Jesus Christ have borne witness to the world that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and he rose again the third day. Anthony, how do you want to start focusing in on the scriptures here? That's a beautiful intro because it is so rich in symbolism, this deliverance. The last week of his life is on this Passover celebration when everybody gathered. I want to kick off when he comes into Jerusalem for Passover. I think there's also something really symbolic when all the people rush to meet him, to see him as he's riding in prophesied on the colt or the donkey, depending on how you want to phrase it. And everybody spreads out the palm leaves, puts clothes down. You've seen the great Harry Anderson painting that was in our manuals. And we go to Matthew 21 for those who are uh, listening. Anthony, do you do that as an artist? I could never name the artist, but do you name them every time? You're like, oh man, every time. I can't help but the second I picture the triumphal entry, I just, I picture Harry Anderson. I picture Walter Rain's great painting. Kirk Richards has a great painting. So grateful for these masterful artists that bring it to life for us visually as well. Yeah. As you said that, I thought, I've never said that before. My first prophets were painters. By prophets, I mean little P prophets that taught me the word because when the enzyme would come to my home uh, every month, I'd sit down and devour it. And I didn't devour the words, I devoured the images. I learned the gospel visually before I ever learned it written. And it was Harry Anderson and Carl Block, Simon Dewey. All the great CCA Christensen with church history, Tom Lovell, Arnold Freeberg, of course, Minerva Teichart. These were the artists that really, they opened up Jesus's world to me visually wow. before I ever did spiritually and with the written word. So it's fun. It's fun to get into your head. Yeah. Let's just read Matthew's version, Matthew 21. Okay. And go to verse eight. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way. 
And the multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. You know, this recognized that phrase, the son of David that you've talked about on this show. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. I mean, can you just imagine this scene and what a scene that would have been? But to me, the phrase that I want to kind of center in on as a theme as we talk through this Easter is verse 10. And when he was come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, who is this? Who is this? And I think that's a great question to ask ourselves personally, right up front. Who is this to me? Who is Jesus to me? And as you look, even in verse 11, and the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. I think there's a fundamental human question that we all have to ask ourselves. Is Jesus a superhero? Is he someone who comforts just, you know, the grand comforter? Is, is he a great moral teacher? Is he a myth? Is he a legend? Is he a prophet? Is he a philosopher? Or is he the son of the highest? Is he my redeemer? Is he my Lord? Is he my God? And I just love that question. Who is this to me? You know, speaking of art a little bit, I had a really fun experience where I was blessed to have a painting of mine that I did that was shown in the church's recent international art competition at the Church History Museum downtown. And when I went to take it there to drop it off, the painting that I did was in collaboration with a few of my ancient scripture colleagues that, that we work with. I was really indebted to Matt Gray for giving me a bunch of historical insight into maybe what would have a first century Galilean Jew from Nazareth have dressed like and typically looked like. I'm the first to say that I have no idea what mortal Jesus would have looked like. But I did this painting based off what he and then our colleague Daniel Becerra modeled for me. And it got accepted into the show. And when I dropped it off, I took it in and the missionaries who were doing the intake, I carried it in and this missionary says, oh, let me see it. And I turned it around and showed it to her. And her first question was, she said, who's that? <laughs> and I said, oh, that's Jesus. And she goes, that's not what Jesus looks like. And I couldn't help but tease her. I said, oh, I didn't know you knew what he looked like. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it reminds me of a great story, too, of there's this uh, girl one time in uh, a class, and she was drawing a picture, and her teacher said, who are you drawing? And she said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the teacher said, oh, well, honey, nobody knows what God looks like. And she looked at her paper and looked at the teacher and said, well, they do now. <laughs> <laughs> but when that happened at the Church History Museum, it was kind of a metaphor to me of how people see Jesus differently. And some people, they see him one way and some another way. And I'm not claiming that, that my way of depicting him or seeing him is right. But one of my favorite books that I've read outside of the LDS canon is by a Christian author. His name's Philip Yancey. And he wrote a beautiful book called The Jesus I Never Knew. He decided to take, he grew up as a Christian. And if I could summarize his book, he said, if I had to just forget all of the myths or the felt bored stories that I grew up hearing about Jesus, and if I just read Jesus from the scriptures, what would I learn about him? Who is he? And he approached it as a journalist that way. And the conclusions and the way he writes is just so beautiful. And again, it's just this idea of 
who is this to me? Who really is Jesus? Is that who he is? And the reason why I think it's so powerful on this last week as we celebrate his life is because he's going to go into this last week with throngs celebrating him, and he's going to go out of this last week with nobody standing by him. Even his own apostles will run away from him. Listen to what Elder Holland said about this. Quote, a very great multitude thronged to meet him, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that come in the name of the Lord. And then at the end of the week, Elder Holland says, where were all those people now? Can one lose that many friends in seven days? And I think one of the reasons why is because people imagine Jesus or they want him to be one thing, but he turns out to not be what they want him to be. For example, on the first week, and there's a great on the church's website, if we want to start getting into the the last week of his life, one of the very first things Jesus does is he cleanses the temple. And Jesus could have come into Jerusalem, gone over to the Antonia Fortress and wiped out the Romans. And he doesn't do that. The very first thing he does is he cleanses the temple. And it shows that Jesus, he's not going to be the kind of Messiah that the people necessarily wanted him to be. He's going to be the kind of Messiah that his father told him to be. He's here to cleanse hearts, not to cleanse Romans out of the city. He's here to make God's house a holy house, not to make our houses perfectly comfortable. And I think this is really important for us as we reflect on who Jesus is around Easter, is again, we say, who is he to me? Who is this? And I was even commenting to somebody recently when we say our prayers, in simplistic prayers, it's like, man, are we really praying for God's will or are we just praying to be in the Garden of Eden? You know, everything is blessed me to be safe, blessed no bad things to ever happen, blessed nobody to ever get sick, blessed nobody to ever get hurt, blessed me to do get A's on all my exams, blessed me to succeed at my job, bless everything to be fine all the time. Like even my own kid, when they say their prayers, I think the phrase, blessed that we can... I'll be happy and I'll be safe is said about a hundred times per prayer. And it makes me wonder where I'm like, the point of life isn't to be back in Eden. The point of life is to learn to be celestial. I'm probably soapboxing a little bit too much here right now up front, but I think people might lose their faith when Jesus doesn't turn out to be who they want him to be, which is a deliverer from metaphorical Rome or making life the external life perfect. And what he wants to do is make our internal life holy through his holiness. It's so crucial for us. Elder Neil A. Maxwell said, how can you and I really expect to glide naively through life as if to say, Lord, give me experience, but not grief, not sorrow, not pain, not opposition, not betrayal, and certainly not to be forsaken. Keep from me, Lord, all those experiences which made thee what thou art. Then let me come and dwell with thee and fully share thy joy. And he says later in that same talk, we plead for exemption more than we do for sanctification, don't we, brothers yes. and sisters? Yes. Yeah. Spot on. It's like he was a prophet there. Yeah. Here comes Jesus into Jerusalem. I'm ready for him to be crowned king. Give me a wonderful life. And he comes in and starts cl cleansing the temple, which uh, that's a great point, Anthony, that uh, we're going to find out later. He doesn't meet a lot of what they'd hoped or expected. Yeah. 
And Philip Yancey, in, in that book that I mentioned, he says, Jesus seems to have a different set of priorities than we do. When we see the artwork of the triumphal entry, I've always wondered about that. And when I've seen movies depicted, if the actor portraying Jesus in those movies, sometimes I feel like I can see that he's gracious and he's smiling, but he knows they're cheering for a Messiah that's different than what I'm really coming to do. And it's kind of like he knows this fickle crowd is expecting one thing. And as you said, Anthony, but <laughs> at the end of this week, you will all have left. I, I don't know, that triumphal entry kind of has a sad note to it because he knows, well, you, you feel this way now, but wait, because I'm not the Messiah that you're expecting me to be. I love what you said here about the road to Emmaus and the disciples. Well, we had expected that it would be him who would deliver Israel. And Jesus like Jesus has to tell him, ought be not fooled. Christ to have suffered yeah. for sins and tries to, no, you, your expectations were wrong again. Yeah. There's that great general conference story with the family that had the child that was sick. And they said, our faith is in Jesus Christ, not in outcomes. I think as we progress in our own spirituality and really coming into Christ and really hearing his voice, our prayers go from make everything in my life perfect to help me internally to become more holy, help me to become more like thee, help to change my heart, help to mold my character, help not deliver me from the difficulties of life, but deliver me from sin. We shift from this is everything I want to what is it that you want for me? And I think those who stay with Christ, the disciples who do testify of him and are there with him and rejoice in him and love him, they've made that shift from the external, deliver me from the Romans and the, the automatic meal maker, bread deliverer, heal my broken bones. They've had an experience with the Lord where he's healed their hearts and changed their lives and made them more godlike people that they can therefore testify of his divine grace and of his uh, divine sonship, uh, not just as an mir external miracle worker. I can't remember who said this, but I've just latched onto this phrase because I find it to be uh, instructive, is that God is more interested in our growth than he is in our comfort. And kind of prayers you're talking about are all make us comfortable, but he's like, no, I'm more interested in your growth than I am in your comfort. And that growing can be uncomfortable. As they're, they're crying out, Hosanna, save now. And he's saying, I think he's, he's probably yeah. thinking, I am going to save you now. <laughs> I am going to be crowned king. It's just not going to be the way you think it's going to be. It's going to be better. Is this true, you guys? Right up until the end, even Peter getting out his sword. All right, here we go. He's going to redeem Israel right now and let's start this battle. And Jesus is like, put up your sword. That's not, that's not the kind of Messiah I am. And yeah, and it yeah. seems that all these gospels were written after the fact, after and when they're, oh, okay. Yeah, he did say that, didn't he? He did say <laughs> he, he did. was going to suffer and die. <laughs> yeah, he did say that. And, but at the time they seemed to not kind of get it except for some of the women they got it she has done this for my burial they seem to hear that part and john the baptist too behold the lamb of god there's there seems to be some people who who understand i don't want to turn interviewer but i would love to ask you two how that shift has happened from make my life comfortable to make my life holy uh, <laughs> you're assuming that it has happened 
um, <laughs> which is still work in progress. When my brother and my father passed away and dealing with, I don't want to say permanence, but with the mortal permanence of this, something I would love to not have happened. And then yet it here it happened and there's nothing you can do about it. So those are the moments where you can either turn and be upset and be angry, or you can submit and you can say, I believe in the plan. I believe in what do you want from me at this point? Not necessarily, why did you do this to me? That seems to me to be at least a point in my life where I had to make a decision if I was going to align myself with the Lord and his will, or kind of, we were going to butt heads uh, and I was going to say, no, this is what I want to have happen. And that was a good shift. It was a good shift for me. It wasn't necessarily pleasant. <laughs> I wouldn't call it the most pleasant of experiences, but it was sanctifying, as Elder Maxwell would say. You guys have probably heard me talk about donating a kidney to my oldest brother. And up until a moment just before that surgery, David is a, a brilliant electrical engineer, totally different skill set than I have. <laughs> and he had invented this device which would digitally separate the volume level of a general conference speaker from the translator and digitize it and shoot it to a satellite. And the church wanted these things yesterday, you know. Elder Rex Pinnegar came to give us both a blessing, and we thought, he's going to heal David because they want this. And my dad was going to give him a blessing, and we thought, dad's going to heal him. And then, what? Well, nope, here comes Elder Rex Pinner. He's going he's gonna to heal him because they want this thing so, so urgently. And he put his hands on my brother's head, and he said, your body will not reject the new element. Among other things, I just remember that phrase. And I thought, oh, I guess we're doing it. And then <laughs> he blessed me and said, you will be perfectly all right. Now you guys can look and judge about that. But anyway, what a blessing for my family to go through that. It's a great lesson for me that the first principle of the gospel is not faith in what you want. The first principle of the gospel is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I had heard that before, guys, but this time I really got it. And the closeness that brought to my family going through that was might not have happened in the same way. And it really helped me to think there's a difference between faith in what I want and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's, that's where I would say that was a, an event that helped me say, he's got this and you can either have what you want or you can have something better if you'll put your faith in him, you know? Yeah. Thank you guys. I mean, just back to that phrase, who is this? Who is this in my life? You know what that reminded me too of Anthony is the Christmas carol. What child is this? I mean, <laughs> that same, what angels or wise men? What, who is this? What child is this? And now here he comes. Who is this? We all have to answer that question. So I'm glad you're, you're emphasizing it today. Yeah. Anthony, I'm so glad you brought this up because we all have these moments in our life, these triumphal entry moments, I think, where we're so excited. The future looks so good. And we think, I know exactly what's going to happen and how perfect this is going to be. And then, and then the Savior dies and how devastating that must have been for a lot of these people. I wonder if they're after his death thinking, 
a week ago, a week ago, just a week ago, I was cheering and I was ready to, I was ready to be free. And here it's all changed. And we all have moments like where everything changes. Elder Bednar tells a story about a, and both of you will remember this. He tells a story about a, a young couple who had been married for three whole weeks, approximately three weeks after their temple marriage. Uh, the names are John and Heather. John was diagnosed with bone cancer. Can you imagine that that turn of through marriage Ugh, and how yeah. wonderful and how great the future mm. is going to be? And then just three weeks later, this turns. Well, you can look this up, anybody. We can put it in our show notes. It's called Accepting the Lord's Will and Timing. And he, he talks about John and Heather. I, I won't tell the whole story here, but I do want to read one part that everyone will probably recognize. It's when Elder Bednar goes to give John a blessing and he says, I asked him a question I had not planned to ask him, nor have I ever previously considered the question. That's a cool moment right there where Elder Bednar says, the spirit gave me this question. John, do you have the faith not to be healed? If it is the will of our heavenly father that you are transferred by death in your youth to the spirit world to continue your ministry, do you have the faith to submit to his will? and not be healed. And it goes on to talk about John and Heather's response to that. That's not what they were hoping for. They were hoping for Elder Bednar to come and heal John. But they ponder the question, and he said, John said to me, I think this is at a later point, Elder Bednar, I do not want to die. I do not want to leave Heather. But if the will of the Lord is to transfer me to the spirit world, then I guess I am good with that. Later on, John writes in his journal, going through the chemotherapy and having the cancer go away and then come back. He, he talks about the Savior calming the waters. And he says, in that moment, as I read that story, I asked myself, do I really believe this? Do I really believe he calmed the waters that day? The answer is, I do believe. And because I know he calmed the waters, I instantly knew he could heal me. Up until this point, I had a hard time reconciling the need for my faith in Christ with the inevitability of his will. I saw these as two separate things, and sometimes I felt the one contradicted the other. Why should I have faith if his will ultimately is what will prevail? After this experience, I knew that having faith, at least in my circumstance, was not necessarily knowing that he would heal me, but that he could heal me. I had to believe that he could and that whether it happened was up to him. As I allowed these two ideas to coexist in my life, focused faith in Jesus Christ and complete submission to his will, I found greater comfort and peace. Just a fantastic story. And I hope everyone can get a chance to go read the whole article if you haven't ever read it. Thank you both for sharing your personal stories and those other stories. Everybody listening right now has their own stories, their own tensions right now on levels that probably we can't even understand. But there's always this tension of what is my will and what is God's will? And who do I want Jesus to be? And who is Jesus? Who is this? And learning to come to know him and submit ourselves to his divine will and ways. Even right now, I'm teaching a really fun Doctrine and Covenants class at BYU. And teaching the Doctrine and Covenants, there's nothing new in that. We've been doing that for decades. But what we're doing that's a little different is we're just studying the text only in the whole semester. And I've set it up with my students. I've taken Doctrine and Covenants, section 19, verse 23, as kind of our foundational verse, where the Lord says in that verse, learn of me. 
listen to my words, walk in the meekness of my spirit, and ye shall have peace in me. And I tell him, what your challenge is as you're reading this text is to really learn who is Jesus? What is his divine character and nature and mission? Learn of me, really learn of who he is saying he is, not who we want him and making him up to be. Listen to my words. What's he teaching? What's he saying? What does he want us to understand? Walk in the meekness. What is he wanting us to therefore do? How does he want us to behave? And then what's he promising? And then you can have peace in me. That's been a great fourfold approach to study the Doctrine and Covenants. And in my own personal family, my wife and I, were using that to study the New Testament right now as we go through these chapters. And maybe on this Easter lesson, as you go through the last week of Jesus's life and you look at Holy Week, ask yourself those four questions. What am I learning about who he is? What his mission is? What does he really want me to understand? What does he want me to do? And what is he really promising that I need to hear and submit myself to? Fantastic. What do you want to do next, Anthony, as we continue on with our Easter lesson? I'm grateful that the curriculum manual has a really good breakdown of Holy Week. And we were joking around before we turned the camera on that some people might break these days down differently, and that's fine. I think what we do know is Jesus had a last week of his life. Yeah, that's the important part. (laughs) That's the important part. So let's not get lost in the weeds here. And they break down some of the things he does. Like on Monday, he cleanses the temple, as we've been talking about. On Tuesday, he teaches in Jerusalem. And that's when he curses the fig tree. And he tells the disciples if they can have faith, they'll move mountains. This is Matthew 21 to 23. And he gives some of the parables about the two sons and the servants and the king's son, kind of like, are, are you accepting me? Back to this question. Or are you rejecting me and rejecting my invitation? A lot of people call this day the day of debate because he's going back and forth with Pharisees and Sadducees and Herodians. Yes. On Wednesday, as the manual says, continued teaching Matthew 24 and 25. This is when he gives the, you know, all of that discourse, you can call it, all the signs of his second coming. These ones seem to shift like, you want my kingship? Are you preparing for when I will return to come and and deliver us from all the effects of the fall in the millennial reign? So this is where he gives, you know, sheep and the goats, the parable of the talents. And I really do like the parable of the 10 virgins as well, because in there, back to this, who is he and do we know him? You know, we've all read the when the five foolish versions who come and bang on the door and he says, I know you not, that the Joseph Smith translation changes it to ye know me not. So there almost seems to be this continued teaching in Matthew 24 to 25 is all on second coming and have you come to know me? Are you ready to receive me as your king when I do come in that form? Let's just go to Thursday, which is when they will celebrate the Passover and it's Christ suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane. And let's read the Matthew version there in Matthew 26. We'll start in verse 26, Matthew 26, 26. So they're gathered, obviously, to celebrate the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, as they call it, remembering their flight from Egypt and their deliverance. So symbolic. And as they're eating that unleavened Passover bread, verse 26, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, 
this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them. They would have passed this cup around saying, drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Well, just one thing that I want to call attention to here is I love as we're celebrating Easter and he's instituting this, remember what I'm going to do for you. In the Book of Mormon version of this, when he institutes a sacrament, I love that he emphasizes that they should remember his body, which I have shown unto you. Almost like we're not just celebrating his death when we're remembering his body and his blood. We're remembering his resurrection. When we partake of this sacrament, we're celebrating his sacrifice for us, but is also his conquering and triumph for us. I just love how the Book of Mormon, in a subtle little phrase, to remember this body, which I have shown unto you. Remember my resurrection. Remember that I have conquered sin and death, not just that I'm suffering and dying, but that I've suffered for you to cleanse you and that I've conquered death for you to resurrect you. I just love that emphasis that the Book of Mormon puts on the sacrament there. What a great insight that during the sacrament, I can be thinking of the, the Savior's torn flesh, yes, but also his resurrected body. Doesn't the Doctrine and Covenants point towards a future feast as well? Oh, yeah. In Doctrine and Covenants section 27, when Joseph Smith is preparing this sacrament for when some people are being confirmed, and he goes off on this revelatory soliloquy that the time is going to come when the Lord says, I will drink of the fruit of the vine with you again on the earth. Then he lists with all these people, and he says, and with all those whom the Father hath given me out of the world. Now, that's us. We can imagine on this last week of Jesus' life being one of the apostles with him as he institutes the sacrament. But can you imagine for one moment being when he comes at this great last supper, this great last sacrament with all those whom the Father hath given him out of the world, and that we partake of the bread and remember his body and blood with him right there. I can't even imagine that day. So beautiful. To have someone over for dinner when we extend an invitation like that. We love them. We accept them. We want them in our home. And I know that in the New Testament, the same sort of thing was true. To sit and eat with someone meant something. And I always think of the sacrament that way. This is remembering the Last Supper and the Lord is saying, come and eat this with me. I, I want you here. <laughs> yeah, I want you with me. You know how the Pharisees would say, this man eats with publicans and sinners. And Jesus wanted them to eat with him too. And he wants us to eat with him. And that the sacrament is an invitation that way. Come and sit at my table. And for him to come again, like you said, Anthony, that's hard to imagine, isn't it? Yeah, but it will happen. I have faith that that day will happen. It's going to be marvelous. So. Anthony, what I'm seeing here is the sacrament can be looking at the past, looking at the Savior's sacrifice, looking at the present. He is resurrected. He's a resurrected being. We can remember that during the sacrament and then also looking to the future, this future feast that we'll have with him, literally with him. I love that. Past, present, and future. I love that he says in there, and with Moroni, that just touches me that he got that job to take over for his father, finish the Book of Mormon, and that the Lord says, and with Moroni, what that Moroni is going to be there too. <laughs> must have done for him. 
after Jesus institutes the sacrament, we know he prophesies that one will betray him. And then he is going to go into Gethsemane, this garden that's just across the Kidron Valley on the other side of the temple there onto the Mount of Olives. And there is an oil press there where they likely are pressing oil, maybe even likely for the temple. And Jesus is going to go into this garden area by garden. It's likely this garden of olive trees, so symbolic of the press as we've seen, Gethsemane, which literally means the place of the press. And there he's going to pray and suffer. One of the things that I want to focus on is in his prayer, back to who is he? I'm going to read the Luke version, Luke 22, start in verse 39. And he came out and went as he was wont to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples also followed him. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, Pray that ye enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast, and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. That prayer is so powerful because even our Lord, who is perfect and who did no sin and who did no wrong, I think as we're talking about this idea up front of who is this, as I was saying, like we pray to have everything be basically back in Eden, fix me from all the external difficulties. It's easy to say that. It's hard to experience it. And we all know this. I actually find comfort in Jesus's most trying moment as he's preparing to give his life for us, that he's even saying, I don't want to have to do this. Is there another way? Can you remove this? Can you stop this? He even feels those feelings. So in mortality, when we're going through this and we're saying things like, I don't want to suffer this or experience this or lose this person. Please take it away, right? Please please take it. it away. Even Jesus feels that way. But I think the key that we can learn from him here as we celebrate Easter and as we ask ourselves, who is this, is that he caps his prayer off with, not my will, but thine be done. That is Jesus from the beginning, from the pre-mortal life. Father, thy will be done and the glory be thine forever. All the way up to the end of his life. That phrase, thy will be done, seems to be the phrase that defines him. So much so that when Jesus resurrects and appears to the people of Nephi in the Book of Mormon. Listen to his introduction in 3 Nephi 11.11. I mean, this is a curious introduction. He could have said almost anything for his bio line to them. But this is what he says, quote, Behold, I am Jesus Christ, whom the prophets testified shall come into the world. I have drunk out of that bitter cup which the Father hath given me and have glorified the Father in taking upon me the sins of the world, in the which I have suffered the will of the Father in all things from the beginning. That's so fascinating to me that that's his introduction to the Nephites, is what defines me is that I am willing to drink the bitter cup. I am willing to do the will of the Father from the beginning to the end. And as you and I are learning to be Christ-like, I think that might be the greatest definition of being Christ-like, is learning how to submit to the will of the Father in our own personal bitter cups. You mentioned that, uh, Anthony, the 
thy will be done from the pre-mortal existence. And now right here in Gethsemane, I want to share with our audience, if you go to Matthew 27, 50, Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. In other of the gospels, he says, it is finished. And, and for years, I thought his last words, it is finished. I just figured, I guess it was my, my suffering. It's focused on his own suffering. That's what I would have been focusing on. <laughs> and the footnote, the JST on Matthew 27, 50, he cried with a loud voice saying, Father, it is finished. Thy will is done. It I, sounds like it refers to doing the Father's will. So I just wanted to mention what you just said there, because even then, even then he was not thinking about his suffering. He was thinking about, I'm doing the Father's will. And it, thy Father's, thy will is done. So that's a great little footnote 50A on Matthew 27 there. I love it. Thanks for sharing that. And we'll talk a little bit maybe later on in the show about when it is finished, because I think Easter is also a, a microcosm of a macro work that God is going to finish through Jesus. I love, too, just the idea of that word. I mean, <laughs> President Monson walking around downtown probably 60, 70, 80 years ago saw a sign that said finishers wanted. Do you remember that story about furniture and saw another meaning in that and gave that wonderful talk and conference about finishers wanted. And here's Jesus saying, he, he's the author and the finisher of our faith. Moroni and Paul call him. And here he just said, it is finished. Thy will is done. I finished doing what I said I would do. In his October 2020 general conference talk, Let God Prevail, which I think all of us are familiar with, President Nelson says, the question for each of us is the same. Are you willing to let God prevail in your life? Are you willing to let God be the most important influence in your life? Will you allow his words, his commandments, and his covenants to influence what you do each day? Will you allow his voice to take priority over any other? Are you willing to let whatever he needs you to do? That's this moment, right, in Gethsemane. Are you willing to let whatever he needs you to do to take precedence over every other ambition? Are you willing to have your will swallowed up in his? I loved that talk, and I loved the idea of missionaries going out to gather Israel to find others who are willing to let God prevail. I thought it was such a wonderful idea. It's so well said, so hard to do, <laughs> so difficult to do. It is. Even in my own personal life right now, I've mentioned that I'm serving as a bishop right now, and it is challenging, if I can use that word. It is challenging. I find myself sometimes <laughs> on Sundays waking up and just going like, <sighs> here all right, go. here we go. <laughs> I made the comment to somebody that, they said something about putting in this long full day on Sundays. And to be totally honest, you know, at first I resisted it. It was difficult. And I might even say that I had some hard or difficult feelings because of it. But what I've been working on lately, just back to this learning to submit, I'm trying to learn this lesson myself to say, hey, I'm happy to put a eight to 10 hour day in of long meetings and work and dealing with difficult issues and trying to help people and point them to Christ and not having my will be done on a Sunday or lots of other days. 
but to having God's will be done and to learn to quit resisting and instead try to be more accepting and just to be a better servant of the Lord. You know, just even recently, one of my kids said something to me as I was saying something, I got, you know, I'll be home at three or four or whatever time I was going to be home. And, and they're like, okay. And I had to make sure that I said to my son, when he asked me this, I just said, and dad's happy to serve Jesus this way, just so you know. But it's taken me a while to get there, and I'm still trying to get there. These aren't easy lessons. They're easy to say. They're hard to do. And the story I'm sharing is, again, I recognize nothing compared to the difficulties of, of what a lot of listeners are working through, trying to submit their will to God's and to do so even when it's difficult, even when we say, take this away from me. This is hard. It makes me want to tell the, um, I am the gardener here, right? Hubie Brown. God is the <laughs> yeah. gardener. Yeah. Story. Franklin D. Richards says, as a young man, I was offered an appointment to the United States Naval Academy. This was an honor and a real temptation. <laughs> However, in my early life, I decided that I would go on a mission. I could see now if I accepted the Naval Academy appointment, I probably would not be able to serve as a missionary. So there's this moment. What are you going to do? He said, after prayerful consideration, I declined the appointment and I received a call to serve in the Eastern States mission. I will be eternally grateful for the call I received because it was in the mission field that I learned to love the gospel, learned the power of faith and felt the happiness and peace that come when one is responsive to the whisperings of the Holy Spirit. It has been a guide to me throughout my life. Just another story. We could probably sit here for a couple of hours and just tell stories of people giving their will over to God, something they love, something they want, and letting it go. But maybe that, that's just a great thing as we're on this subject for every listener. And this is a lesson we all have to learn, is how do we, in President Nelson's words, let God prevail? How do we submit our will to his? It's been said that everything we have in this life is a gift. King Benjamin says, down to our very breath. Lending you breath. <laughs> You're borrowing it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the interesting thing about consecration is we're dedicating our lives to God. In essence, we're saying, thy will be done in my whole life. And Elder Maxwell, again, said that perhaps the only thing we have that's truly ours is our will. That really is one of the mortal tests of life, is learning to know God and then learning to submit our will to his, as Jesus is exemplifying. And as we're celebrating Easter here, I think it's a great celebration of Jesus showing us how that's done, despite the difficulty of it. So well put. He's showing us. He let God prevail there, showed us how to do it. Please join us for part two of this podcast. 